And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You know, it's amazing. We look at the way technology and information has changed so rapidly. And we see the growing face of the demographics in our nation today, uh, certainly uh, most notably in a state like California. Somebody had a comment to me the other day, you know, for much of the early history of the United States up until uh, probably the last 50 or 60 years, and and to a great degree it continues to this day, though not as prominently, uh, America had been the biggest and most active sending nation in terms of sending nations or sending individuals overseas to the nations to bring about uh, the um, uh, dissemination of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've learned in more recent years that uh, while that can be effective, uh, even more still, it's effective to help train nationals because not only is it um, uh, better stewardship from the economics of it all, but then too, you're not having to call upon individuals to suddenly immerse themselves in a new culture, a new language, new surroundings, which takes some time for acclimation before you can really become effective at what you're doing in terms of ministering to people on the ground in country. With all of that said, a buddy of mine the other day made the observation. He says, you know, with the changing demographics of America and the way the Internet uh, has has made this um, spinning sphere of ours called planet Earth so small, it's almost as if the world has come to us. And in many degrees, it has. And this is a, perhaps a renewed opportunity for we as the church, the body of Christ, to understand the rare and unique opportunity that we have to uh, share the good news, to share that hope uh, and, the, and the good news of the answer that we have through Christ Jesus. With that thought in mind, when we talk about um, the world and we get down to the missiology of, of a Christian worldview, what exactly is that? What do we mean by that? Well, with some in-depth look at how to become a world-class Christian, becoming a part of God's global kingdom, we're joined now by a best-selling author, Paul Brothrick. And uh, Paul, great to have you on the program tonight. Thanks, Greg. Good to be out on the West Coast, at least by voice. Yeah, I must say, I, I guess welcome back. As I understand it, the last time that you were out here, uh, unless there's an in-between trip that I hadn't heard about, the last time you were out in our fair city, there was a whole lot of shaking going on. Oh, I think I've had a few trips in between. Yeah, okay. I was, <laughs> I was there during uh, the October 1989 shake-up. Uh, I think it was in 89, wasn't it? Or was it was in 1989. October 17th, to be precise. I was down at the Hyatt Regency Burlingame at a conference. I was teaching at about 5.15, and the room began to shake. Of course, I thought it was the Holy Ghost coming upon us. But it <laughs> uh, turned out to be an earthquake, which was my first and only earthquake experience. I'm from the Boston area all my life, and uh, so it was quite an unusual experience, to say the least. Well, we're, we're pleased uh, to have the distinction of uh, having provided you with your first and, and hopefully only experience in, in such matters, but it, it's interesting as we start our visit tonight, uh, Paul, with a reference to uh, the, the ground shaking. We've certainly seen a lot of that, too, in the spiritual realm, haven't we? You know, I made, made reference in my opening remarks to how the world is getting so much smaller and how that in many respects, as we had been uh, the, the largest and most active sending nation in terms of sending missionaries overseas, how that in many respects respects, the world is now coming to us. Absolutely. And, you know, outside of the actual time that Jesus walked the earth, I actually can't think of a time in Christian history that's more exciting to be alive than today. Partly because all those American and European lives that got laid down as uh, martyrs for Christ, you know, a century and a, or 50 years ago, uh, their lives have brought forth fruit. And now you have uh, 
the whole church, as the saying goes, taking the whole gospel to the whole world. And uh, it's just a staggering thing. And as I think you quoted earlier, uh, the world has come to us. And I was reading not too long ago a statistic that said the United Nations is citing the fact that the United States is the only country on Earth with someone from every other country on Earth living in it. Hmm. And, you know, when we used to have to go to some really difficult places, in many respects, many of us can reach the unreached peoples of the world simply by reaching out to the, uh, you know, our Muslim co-worker or the, uh, the Buddhist guy who's down the street or the Hindu who happens to be my medical doctor. I mean, you know, it's, it's amazing how the world has changed. We sit here with these devices in the palm of our hand that allows us to text, email. Uh, we can look up uh, websites anywhere around the globe. I think we certainly today, as, as Americans, have got a pretty good understanding of what it means to be globally connected. But I have to wonder, though, Paul, from a Christian perspective, um, as much as the the technology has advanced quite nicely, has the theology kept up with it? Meaning, uh, as as we understand what it means to be globally connected, do Christians really understand also what means to be uh, globally concerned? I think that's an excellent question, um, and I think obviously the answer is going to vary according to the Christian you talk to. The, the sad reality is that technology has given us access to more knowledge than any of us can possibly handle. And as a result, uh, we can become either numb to it or we just shrug it off and say, I can't do anything, I can't make any difference at all. And, uh, you know, you mentioned this book, Being a World-Class Christian. Um, it, it's really about trying to help people see that, you know, you might not be able to change the world, but you might be able to do something of global significance right in your own community, right in your own neighborhood, or at your workplace, or something like that. But I think you're right. It's Technology has made it uh, so overwhelming that you, know, you, you, you go live to the tsunami in Sri Lanka, and by the third day of seeing it, you're just numb to it, because you can't really do that much about it. And it's just another news report to you after a while. And I think that's, you know, we, most of us have forgotten to be praying for Egypt, and yet, a year ago, Egypt was every day in the news. Now, it's still going through the news, but we're not paying as much attention to it because yeah. we have kind of a short attention span. Well, and the new technology, too, you know, where uh, heretofore it might have taken months for the news to arrive from overseas and be disseminated across the spans of a country like the United States, uh, typically by word of mouth, uh, Telegraph to a degree, and 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 the printed page now happens in the matter of seconds, and as quickly as it comes, it's also uh, just as quickly replaced by something else. Uh, you, you made reference to the idea that we might be able to make some changes, we might be able to have some influence, but I have to wonder, uh, as Christians living in this modern world with all that's going on around us, as we speak to that notion of being globally concerned. Is this something that is an option for some believers, or does it really kind of narrow down to being a mandate? Well, it depends on what Bible you're going to use. <laughs> I mean, frankly, if you look in the Scriptures, you cannot escape the fact that God's vision, God's view is for the world and for His people, because for whatever mysterious reason, God has chosen to do His work in the world through people, broken people, forgiven people like you and me, and every one of us has some degree of responsibility. In other words, the mandate, since you used that word, that Jesus gave before He ascended into heaven, you know, to make disciples of all nations, or to preach the gospel to all creation, or to, uh, to be, you know, preach the gospel beginning in Jerusalem to all the nations. I mean, all those things... 
that they still um, remain for each Christian today. And our question is not where we are sent. I'm sorry, our question is not if we are sent into the world. The question is where. And, you know, opening our eyes to the global realities that God said in the Psalms, you know, declare my glory to the nations, my wonderful deeds to all peoples, that's still binding on us today. It's not a matter of just, you know, tucking ourselves away in our safe little bubble and, uh, and thanking God that we have a nice, prosperous life. It's about looking out into the world and saying, what difference can I make that God has uniquely, uniquely equipped me for? Today, we're talking about uh, what it means to be a world-class Christian. Uh, let me be careful that we didn't say a worldly Christian. A lot of folks have got that down pat. We're talking about being a world-class Christian. And with us is best-selling author Paul Brothwick. We're going to come back after a brief timeout, uh, dive a little bit deeper in here, you know, as we talk about the way in which uh, television, satellite, and the Internet and technology has uh, has brought us closer together. I wonder if it's also made us easier to be more uh, spectators as to what is going on of the world around us, as opposed to being participants. We'll dive into that question as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Recent polls have shown a fifth of Americans can't locate the U.S. on a world map. Why do you think this is? I personally believe that U.S. Americans are unable to do so because uh, some uh, People out there in our nation don't have maps, and uh, I believe that our ed- education, like such as in South Africa and uh, the Iraq, everywhere, like such as, and I believe that they should, uh, our education over here in the U.S. should help the U.S. or should help South Africa and should help the Iraq and the Asian countries, so we will be able to build up our future for our children. Thank you very much. Oh, yeah, we thank you very much. That that tortured answer, as much as we listen to it, also demonstrative of a huge need for a deeper education. When you begin to realize that beyond the notion that uh, fewer than three in ten graduates thinks it's important to know the locations of countries in the news, and fully 66% can't even find Iraq or Saudi Arabia on a map, that a large percentage of them even can't, uh, can't even find America course, I guess they lack maps. Call Google on that one, would you? It just is demonstrative of what seems to be a greater level of global connectivity, and yet we're we're not even participating. We're just kind of very casual spectators to it all at many levels. We're visiting today with best-selling author Paul Brothwick. His new book is called How to Be a World-Class Christian, Becoming Part of God's Global Kingdom. Uh, Paul, that, that tortured answer there from uh, a beauty pageant contestant a couple of years ago, certainly uh, troubling in terms of just the notion of the, of the level of, of, of disconnectivity at a day and an age when, quite frankly, staying connected and being educated and, and being able to participate is easier now than it ever was before. Well, I've, I've had an elder at our church ask us, uh, what is the capital of Africa? And, uh, and you know, if you don't get that that's a, uh, a joke, it's there are 53 or 55 countries in Africa, each with their own capital, you know, and yet he thinks of Africa as a country, not as a continent, you know. And, yeah, it's, it's kind of scary. Um, I oftentimes ask um, people who are either new to this country or international students, what's the stupidest question that an American has ever asked you. And I had a student this past semester from Malawi, southeastern Africa, and um, and I asked him what is the stupidest question, and they 
they somebody he was up in uh, Maine, not, not too far from us, and the church that he was hosted by asked him when he started wearing clothes. <laughs> All right, and and he thought it was a joke. Sure. So he said, "Well, when I came to New York after I got through customs, I decided to buy some clothes." And the people were horrified, and he knew they weren't kidding, meaning that they didn't know. And he, because they were thinking, you know, he had come all the way over here buck naked and bought clothes on the other side of customs in New York City. And yet they were, you know, and one of my uh, friends in Nigeria said he got so tired of Americans asking him how he learned English when Nigeria is an English-speaking country. And he said, uh, he said, finally, I got, I decided to tell him I was, I learned it on the plane on the flight over. <laughs> You know, but I mean, to be fair, and I, I, you know, I can be as critical as anybody about Americans' lack of geography knowledge. Uh, but to be fair, there is hardly a place on planet Earth where you can travel for three thousand continuous miles, speak one language, go to Denny's, you know, stay at Hampton Inn, ride on highways that look all remarkably the same in terms of their signposts and everything. So, I mean, in one sense, unlike a country like Luxembourg or Switzerland, where we're surrounded by three or four other language-speaking countries, you know, Americans can be pretty lazy about it. Now, I mean, obviously, um, the influx of Spanish speakers and Chinese speakers, Korean speakers, whatever, is changing some of that in our urban areas. But generally speaking, we don't have to learn about the other countries of the world. And many times I've traveled and people will say they know more about my country, meaning the USA, than I do. And sometimes they do because they're directly affected by the decisions that our government makes and decisions that our military makes. And I'm, you know, it's, it affects me somewhat, but not on a day-to-day basis, generally speaking. As the world is coming more to us, and, and as we certainly, as you've explained earlier, Paul, not been relieved of any obligation in terms of, you know, the, the perspective of bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ to Judea, Samaria, the other most parts of the earth, um, how can, how should Christians begin to develop uh, not just a Christian worldview, but how to become a world-class Christian? Well, I think one of the things that I advocate in the book is obviously cultivating some information, you know, learning about places, that that the Islam of Iran is not the same as the Islam of Iraq, for example, and uh, and what's going on in Egypt affects the entire Arabic-speaking world. Or, you know, learning something about what uh, one article in Time magazine calls the upcoming Chindian century, and it's talking about how the economies of China and India will probably be more significant in the next hundred years than the USA. And wrestling with those kind of questions, even if we disagree with them, to just get some information that sort of rattles our cage a little bit. Because the United States, depending on whose statistics you use, is really only about 5% of the world's population. And so if God so loved the world, John 3.16 then there's a lot to be learned about the world that God loves outside of our own country, as well as within it. One very simple thing that I propose in the book, and in the time that we had on the radio, I want to make sure to say this, because every person, when you start thinking about the world, can feel pretty overwhelmed by it. So my number one creative idea, and I think it's the only one I've ever had, is start your knowledge for the world by praying for the country on the label of your clothes. Okay, so when you take your clothes off, you change any pajamas or whatever tonight, take a look at it, see where it's made, and pray for that country. And I dare say that probably 90% of the clothes in your closet are made someplace else in the world. And you can start learning about them. 
you know, China's obviously going to be there. India, world's largest Hindu country. Indonesia, the world's largest Muslim country. And these places are touching us that way just to get us started thinking about the fact that the world is in our midst, starting with our own, our own wardrobe. And as we pointed out earlier, and, and the world is coming to us, and so the ability to be educated, to be sensitive, particularly as we take into consideration uh, religious differences, cultural viewpoints, uh, can only help but to make us not only more sensitive, but more effective when it comes to sharing the gospel. Yeah, and, and I believe, you know, I mean, there's all sorts of debates about immigration and unregistered people, illegal aliens, and all this other stuff. But in, very, in one very specific Christian perspective on it is, I want people to abide by the law. That's not my point. But they're here, and maybe God brought them here so they could hear the gospel from us. As one Toronto pastor said, Toronto is probably the most international city in, US, in, in, the, uh, in North America. Uh, and he, he's a Toronto pastor, and he said, uh, God commanded us to go to all the nations. We didn't go, so he's bringing all the nations to us. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, you can go down to Southern California and meet a scad of people from, uh, from Iran. They'll call themselves Persians, but they're from Iran, and many of them are adherents to Shiite Islam or to uh, Zoroastrianism, a religion from Iran. And they may have never heard the gospel till they came to come to this country. And if we don't reach out to them, they may still never hear the gospel. And it's just, you know, an amazing uh, opportunity that God's given us. Uh, one, one quick uh, lesson that I learned from one of my professors. He said, when you're walking down the street, let's say in the Bay Area, you're walking down you know, uh, streets in San Francisco, and you see a man uh, with his wife, she has a headscarf on, or you know, there's something about their attire that tells you the, the distinctively some other religion. Maybe he has, he has the turban on, he tells you, he tells you he's a Sikh. He says, he says, pray as you pass by that person, just breathe a prayer, shoot up a prayer on behalf of that person. He said, you might be praying for someone who's never been prayed for in Jesus' name before in their whole lives. Mm. And you're bringing that person before Jesus for the first time. And I mean, think of that as, you know, what a staggering opportunity that we have when the people have come to our country because they're finding this is the place for, you know, uh, a better economic future. But why not help give them a better eternal future? We mentioned earlier that in addition to just taking the time to get educated and something simple is maybe saying, uh, you know, I'm going to see where my shirt was made. Google the name. Look at the country. Pray for that country tonight. Um, you, you talk to a lot in the book about uh, um, being able to get a, a focus on being globally aware Certainly, compassion fatigue sometimes can be a challenge, as we lightly touched on earlier. But when we bring this whole thing together, how do you believe that God wants us to develop to develop this this Christian worldview? How to become uniquely a world class Christian? Well, I think that uh, it has something to do with a phrase that I picked up off a bumper sticker. I don't even think it was Christian by nature, but it said, "It says think globally, act locally." Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I think that's a great summary of what I'm after in my own life, you know, as well as uh, in encouragement in this book, to to realize that, A, we're part of a global Christian family. So when the church suffers in, I'll use Egypt, since I referred to that earlier, uh, that my family is suffering, you know, so I, I'm thinking about that. But I'm also acting locally so that when I meet the uh, Egyptian guy at the medical clinic, uh, I, I'm aware of the fact that, you know, I might be reaching out to someone that my friends in Egypt have never been able to reach. And so, 
you know, it's all a matter of a mindset. It's going into the day. I mean, just this morning I was uh, preparing my breakfast and remembered to pray for Columbia, South America, because when I took the sticker off of the bananas, uh, it, it was actually harvested in Columbia. It says it right there on the sticker. You know, just sort of keeping aware of the fact that there's a bigger world than just the world that I'm in. And, you know, many many people are struggling with the economics of the, t the situation today. Maybe they're in a unemployment situation or underemployment. But just trying to get past ourselves a little bit to realize there's a big world out there and uh, we have an awesome God and we need to get plugged into thinking of ourselves as his agents in this world, whether we're in the unemployment line or we're in the gas station talking to somebody who might have just come here from another country. Get a copy of Paul's book. This will open your eyes and help you develop more of this sense of that Christian worldview. How to be a world-class Christian becoming part of God's global kingdom. And our thanks to Paul Mothwick for being with us tonight on this edition of Lifeline. The book, by the way, published by InterVarsity Press and available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. How many believers today, maybe maybe privately you might even admit this for yourself, you can tell people what you believe, you just can't tell them why. We're going to talk a bit about that today as we meet a very special guest, certainly a very familiar voice to KFAX listeners. He's heard weekday mornings at 7.30 a.m. here on KFAX, senior pastor at Parkside Church in Cleveland and Alistair. Great to have you on the program. Thank you, Craig. It's very kind of you, and uh, it's, a, it's a treat always to talk with you. My goodness, 30 years. Uh, <laughs> the Lord has done some amazing things over the course of the last three decades. Could, could you ever have imagined when you came from uh, Scotland with your, your wife and young family all that time ago that, that the Lord would have taken you in this direction? No, I, I honestly couldn't, and uh, it seems... In some ways, as though it was only yesterday, time has gone by so quickly, as you say, and yet uh, these have been great and privileged years, and uh, I really wouldn't want to change very much about them at all. It's been a peculiar joy to, uh, first of all, serve this congregation and have them be so long-suffering as to put up with me for three decades, and uh, <laughs> and then the radio program on top of that is a, is a, is a wonderful opportunity that uh, we certainly are uh, humbled by and don't take for granted. Well, we don't take it for granted either, Alistair, because I think uh, many of us um, recognize the importance for a ministry such as yours that in in the 30 years has moved, I think, consistently and critically so more and deeper into the arena of a, a Christian apologetics, of which, my goodness, if there was ever a day and time when we needed Christians to be prepared to give an answer for the hope that lies within, this is it. Yeah, I don't think there's any doubt about that. And I was listening to your introductory comments, and uh, I, I agree with you entirely. And uh, a lot of the uh, a lot of the fault, if there if there is an inadequate preparation on the part of uh, uh, Christian people, uh, a lot of the fault has to lie with those of us who are pastors, because our role is to prepare God's people for works of ministry, and uh, part of the ministry is the ministry of proclamation and. Uh, so uh, we don't want to chide ourselves too much, but we take seriously the peculiar challenges that are represented uh, in uh, the culture here in America, particularly in, uh, and expressly so just in the last few days. Well, and certainly, you know, uh, I think all of us perhaps begrudgingly can agree that there have been um, areas lacking 
in the modern-day American pulpit. But that said, the people in the pews have to take a little bit of responsibility to this, too. And I think about uh, a wonderful focus that you bring. I was just going through the pages of um, the book that you've co-authored with Sinclair Ferguson, Name Above All Names. And I just, for the benefit of the audience, let me just quote um, a couple of opening lines here. Alistair writes, Jesus Christ has been given the name above all names. The names assigned to him begin in Genesis, end in Revelation. Taken together, they express the incomparable character of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Reflecting on them better prepares us to respond to the exhortations of Scripture, to focus our gaze upon Him, and to meditate on how great He is. Then Alistair continues, Being able to think long and lovingly about the Lord Jesus is a dying art. The disciplines required to reflect on Him for a prolonged period of time and to be captivated by Him have been relegated to a secondary place in contemporary Christian life. Action, rather than meditation, is the order of the day. Sadly, too often that action is not suffused with the grace and power of Jesus Christ. Boy, if anything could could handily sum up some of what we see in the trends taking place in, in the church in specific and in our society at large, that, that certainly summarizes it. Well, yeah, I think it's. A, <laughs> I think it sounds so good. I'm pretty sure that must be Sinclair. <laughs> <laughs> but it's right on the mark because we we don't ponder the word the way we used to. No, and to reflect on Jesus Christ, to sit and imagine spending hours just pondering about the amazing gift of God's grace that that God would be so passionate about his love for the creation that had nevertheless offended him so, and yet still he was willing to send his only begotten son to die on our behalf. Such a greater love mankind has never known. And and I think that observation in name above all names is right on the mark that we've we've lost the capacity or the desire or the heartbeat to want to ponder and study on that. And I imagine if we would recapture that ability, how the church could turn the world upside down. Yeah, I mean, I I think that you know, if you take the average person coming to church, they're they're not asking the question, "Where is Jesus?" They're asking, "Where am I?" Mm. And uh, there's a sort of man-centered orientation to even the study of Scripture and even the way in which uh, the Bible is taught that sort of reinforces notions that are, you know, sort of immediately appealing, but they don't have any long-lasting value. They're not going to stand. Uh, in the in the challenges of of uh, time when a culture as as ours turns increasingly secular and uh, the Christian Church begins to uh, face the challenge of living as a minority uh, in in the culture, which has not been uh, part and parcel of the American psyche at, at least until this point in time. How much of this really pivots on the church? its strength, its understanding of God's word, its ability to make disciples when we talk about the direction or the condition of, of culture and society at large? Well, you know, church history makes it fairly clear, I think, Craig, that uh, that the collapse of the church has always been internal. You know, it, it has always been able to handle the, the challenges of persecution, the blood of the martyrs being the seed of the church. And when the prevailing drift on the outside has been at its most intense, uh, then the people of God have rediscovered who they are, what God expects of them, and they've they've rallied to the challenge. Um, but but the real danger is the the danger of a sort of internal uh, erosion and a, a collapse in confidence, a loss of confidence 
in the in the relevance and in the truth and in the power of the good news itself. And again, many many people who pay lip service to to Jesus uh, will be uh, really. Uh, struggling to to stand up to the, the the exclusivity of the claims of Jesus that there is only one mediator between God and man and that is Jesus that there is only one name by which men and women may be saved and that is in the name of Jesus and the the, the drift in culture in in our um, uh, sort of deconstructed use of language and our understanding of history is so dominant that uh, it, it's absolutely imperative that uh, those who profess the name of Christ. Uh, really dig in and understand just what it means for them to be in union with Christ and what a man or a a woman in Christ really is. If you've just joined our conversation tonight, Pastor Alistair Begg with us on the program. He, of course, is the host of Truth For Life, heard weekday mornings at 7.30 a.m. We're going to take a brief time out. When we come back, more of our conversation, we dig down into uh, the, the baseline importance of what it means to truly be a disciple of Christ as our conversation with Pastor Alistair Begg continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to our conversation. Pastor Alistair Begg on the program tonight. More information on the web about the broadcast and ministry at truthforlife.org. That's truthforlife.org. The broadcast weekday mornings at 730 right here on KFAX. You know, we hear these days, Alistair, churches that have huge crowds and folks that will get up in the platforms, uh, on the pulpit rather, and will share uh, platitudes and nice stories and things of this sort. It seems, though, that on an ever-increasing basis, preaching about the blood of Christ, the atonement, preaching about the need to count the cost of what it truly means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ is something that that seems to be glaringly absent. Well, yes, you know, I think... Um, it's always dangerous to generalize, and I know you understand that too. Um, yeah, I think we've gone through a real, a, a real period of time in which, you know, that idea of the way to make sure that we don't offend anybody is to uh, dilute things to the point of uh, pretty well tastelessness. And, um, you know, when um, the old uh, Scottish theologian spoke to the Yale Divinity students, uh, uh, James Stewart, in, in 1952, uh, he warned them, 52, which is 61 years ago, about what he referred to as a, a, a theologically vague and harmlessly accommodating kind of Christianity, which he said was absolutely useless. Mm. And, you know, I, I think we're seeing the evidences of that now. And one of the one of the encouraging things for me is, somebody who's now moved into, you know, um, my 60s, is to see how many young men, though, are coming through in uh, various places in the country and who have really fastened on to the idea that uh, if we're going to take seriously what it means that Jesus is Lord, then we have no right to tamper with or to dilute or to try and redefine the claims of Jesus, but we must just state them as they are. And, of course, to fail to do so really uh, sort of strips the gospel of its life-changing power, doesn't it? Well, of course it does. I mean, the, I mean, in, in first century Corinth, Paul knew that, uh, you know, if he gave the people what they wanted to, to receive, whether it was the Jew or the Greek, then they would receive him with open arms. Uh, but the one thing that uh, uh, they were unprepared for is, um, you know, the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified. There certainly seems to be, as we look at society today, uh, Western culture, 
there still seems to be a desire and interest in spiritual things. I, I think that sense of, of man's deep, innate longing uh, to be connected with God is there. We just, on an ever-increasing basis, don't know how to define it, and we head out to many false sources to try and address it or satisfy it, be it through pagan religion or the occult or whatever the case might be. Um, and and yet, so we see still a strong hunger, a strong spiritual desire, but it seems as if fewer people are really turning to Christianity, perhaps because we're not sharing the message with the kind of clarity and relevance that is needed to pierce people's hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit and and present a gospel that people can look at and say, wow, there's real power behind this. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really helpful, Craig. I, you know, we have an Australian friend who visits here, you know, every few years, and I remember the last time he was here, he made a comment concerning you know, sort of American Christianity. And, of course, we want to be as guarded with Australians as we should be with Scotsmen. But uh, <laughs> he, he, you know, he said that he, he, he sensed a tone in American Christianity which was, which was a tone of admonition rather than a tone of mission. So mm. that we were going to the culture to admonish them for everything that was wrong uh, you know, in their belief system and in their expressions of their understandings. And I think it is an important thing to realize that uh, Jesus never, ever, um, and he never deviated from the clarity of his message. And yet the way in which he approached Zacchaeus or the way in which he approached the woman at the well, you know, is is a masterful illustration to us of the way in which uh, we ought to be prepared to to speak to people on the on the troubled seas of life. Have we missed the mark then to a great degree in the sense, Alistair, that I think of the the wave of evangelicalism uh, getting involved in the body politic in a significant fashion, first in the late 1970s and, and certainly in through the decade of the 1980s and into the 90s, not to suggest at all, before listeners flood the phone lines here and I get in trouble, that, that we don't have an obligation as believers to vote and be involved in this business of self-governance. I believe that we do. And yet, oftentimes, it seemed as if there was a time in which we exchanged our involvement in the body politic for the realization that if we're going to change the world, we have to change hearts. You really can't affect change of heart by making political change. Yes, things and work needs to be done. Certainly, the evidence of the um, uh, what's been coming out of Washington, D.C. in the last couple of days proves that. Yet, at the end of the day, the real power is the, is the changed heart. Yeah, it's a it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because we do want to make sure that that each of us are seizing the privileges and responsibilities of living in a democracy like this and making our voice heard and standing up for uh, you know moral rectitude and for for biblical values and so on. But um, you know, I, I think it's probably too soon to make these determinations, and I'm also fearful of overstepping my bounds here. But if you think back to well, I've been here three decades, so I get here right around the time I think that the moral majority and uh, and that whole movement is you know is is coming to the fore and doing what it's done and you know it's gone all the way around. But you know, I think we have to say that actually it really hasn't achieved its objectives. Mm. It's been it's it's been unable to to do this. I mean, we we're we're talking now. Uh, the day after the Supreme Court, you know, passes down what is it certainly couldn't be any any anything other than um, uh, a testimony to to immorality and to the the the, um, the the very reverse of the things that were angled for and laboured for. And I, I actually am quite excited about it, though, Craig. I I'm not uh, despondent. I'm not wringing my hands. I I think that 
there are certain things that are bad for our country that may well prove to be good for the church. Mm. If we if we recognize that, uh, as we must, that God is sovereign over these things, that he is the one who sets people up and he is the one who brings them down. Um, he doesn't do that in a vacuum and therefore our voice must be heard. But we have to recognize too that, you know, our view of the world is, is a much larger, vaster conception of what is going on. We're actually affirming the fact that Jesus Christ is not only a resurrected uh, savior, but he is an ascended king, that he rules over the cosmos. And that the providence of God is such that nothing happens except through him and by his will. That's basic biblical Christianity, which, of course, challenges a worldview that is deistic or pantheistic, uh, which, of course, is, you know, both both perspectives are prevalent in, in our contemporary society. So that really takes us back then to the centrality of his lordship and maybe time, as you point out, for some introspection of the church. As much as it's easy to become dismayed by these events, morally, politically, even economically, that's been occurring in our country and in, in sort of the, the micro and globally in the macro, to understand that for the church, focusing back on teaching and prayer and giving ourselves to evangelism and to worship and giving to the poor and, and certainly discipleship, if we can get back to those key things, then I think God can indeed have us in the position where he can better use us to influence culture and society around us. Yeah, you know, I mean, if you think about, for example, an era like, uh, you know, the 18th century awakening with Whitfield, yes. you've, you, all, you always have strong, strong preaching. Uh, Dwight L. Moody, you know, apparently didn't have very many sermons, but nobody misunderstood him when he spoke. And he combined, as did Spurgeon in Victorian England, um, a real commitment to the good news, the proclamation of the good news, combined with expressions of good deeds, so that both of them were engaged in in the social um, dimension of their immediate environment, whether it was in Chicago or in London. Both of them were involved with orphanages. And yet they did not for a moment confuse the necessity of people turning to Christ in repentance and faith with uh, the the good and necessary outflow of Christian uh, living that, that uh, cares for, the, for those who are least and last and left out. If there could be one singular message that is central to your heartbeat, the one message that you'd like to get across to every man and woman who has named Jesus as Lord and Savior, what would that be? Wow. Oh, well, I think if I just apply it to myself, I mean, I think to fully understand that, you know, when Paul says one day at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to understand that, that he's not talking there about that being an expression of devotion. He's talking about being a, an expression of his identity. That what he's saying there is that this that this Jesus, as the apostles did post Pentecost, this Jesus whom you crucified, uh, God has made him both Lord and King, and therefore I have no freedom to believe anything other than what He teaches me, and what He teaches me is left for me in the Scriptures, and I have no freedom to behave in any other way than that for which uh, to which I'm called, and that then you know impacts every area of our lives, uh, our vocation. Uh, our sexuality, uh, our marriages, uh, our singleness, whatever it might be. And, you know, then then we have an opportunity to uh, to speak to people. And, and often, uh, you know, the, the attractiveness of it uh, ought to be found in 
the loveliness of Christ, the mm-hmm. compassion of Christ, the patience of Christ. And I think so often, if you if you take, for example, and sometimes the media has branded us in this way and a few crazy people have, have led to it, but, but I think we do have to face the fact that we often come across as a rather disgruntled and angry bunch of people, uh, as opposed to uh, a people who say that they have been born again to a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Yeah, you're right. It's often interesting if you talk to non-believers um, and get their opinion about Christians. Uh, they can give you a long list, a big litany of what it is that we are against. Right. And then when you ask them, can you tell us what Christians are for? They're silence. Yeah. yeah. And uh, and that speaks volumes, certainly. Yeah, it does. I mean, I, I, I you know, if you think about Jesus with the woman at the well, you know, what a, what a conversation starts. May I have a drink of water, please? You know, he doesn't. He he eventually gets to the point. You know, when he asks her to call her husband, and and she admits that you know she's had a number of husbands and she has a live-in lover. But that's not what that's not what he starts with. I mean, he's not sitting at the well with a big sign condemning you know her uh, her multiple relationships. He he starts by uh, simply engaging her in conversation. Hey, we as the church can learn a lot from that example, that we might be better to engage the culture and society around us for the sake of the gospel by simply beginning with engaging others in conversation and, of course, ultimately understanding what it means to be a disciple, to count the cost. We sure appreciate your time, your faithfulness to the Lord, and the caliber and quality of your uh, teaching ministry. Thanks so much again for the time. There's Pastor Alistair Begg. Again, uh, his broadcast is weekday mornings at 7.30 here on KFAX. And, uh, wow, 30 years of ministry at Parkside Church in uh, Cleveland. And what a blessing it is to have him as part of the ministry here at KFAX. And let me just say this. If Alistair's pulpit ministry has been a blessing to you, would you take a moment today and jot him a note It's not about puffing people up, but, you know, sometimes it's good to know that you're making a difference, that what you're saying and what you're teaching and your heartbeat and your passion for God and for his word is impacting lives. And if you would take a moment today to drop him a note, I know that he would certainly be blessed and encouraged by that. You can get more information about the ministry at truthforlife.org, truthforlife.org. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.